Hey, it's Todd Duncan. Welcome to High Trust Today, the podcast. I'm on a quest to help people win in business and in life. To do that, I know they must trust themselves, their relationships, their business, and they most certainly must trust their future. When you do that, you set in motion a universe of possibilities, and that journey begins right now. But I just thought it would be appropriate uh, to talk with you about a concept that I really love, and it's a concept that's called a head to dead. The genesis for this really came out of interaction with many of our students and also a good friend, Dan Trinidad, who early on had kind of come up with the idea of what would it be like to go to age 80 and kind of work your life backwards, you know, the personification of begin with the end in mind. And ahead to 80 became a very powerful exercise for those who chose to go all the way down to that period in their life and begin to work backwards. And yet, you know, how much more time is there from the age of 80 on? And yet maybe many of us are thinking, hey, I'd just like to get to 80. Well, it doesn't really matter where you are. It matters that you treat this gift called life with the sense that in any given moment, things could get snuffed out. And what I want to talk about is not a recurring theme that you've heard me speak about for years and not really anything that's redundant or repetitive, although it would be valuable to probably remind you of some of those truths. But I want to talk about the absolute importance of living your life in a way now so that whenever that last day and that last breath occurs, that you will have a life that will have been well lived and that you will have no regrets and that those who love you and who care about you and those that you've made a marked difference in will forever have a branded image of you that is positive and not negative. The thesis for this month's lesson is a very simple thesis, and it's this. No one gets out of here alive. I mean, nobody gets out of here alive. I have a dear friend. His name is George Akers, and he works for a mortgage company in the Midwest. And uh, recently, he and I, along with about 30 other professionals, were up in Sun River, Oregon, and we were having a wonderful two-day brainstorming summit. And uh, George began to talk to me about this incredible book that he had found and shared with me some of the context of a particular section in this book that really had to do with character. And I was really moved by what he shared. And I guess now I know why I was moved, because as I continued to dig a little bit deeper with George, I learned that the book that he was referring to, The Royal Path of Life, was a book that was written in 1879. And as George characterized the book, he said, you know, it's got almost every single topic that you could possibly think about studying in your life relative to life. And behind that topic is a three to 10 page essay on the topic. So it's probably not a surprise to you that within the hard bound covers of this 130 year old book, if you will, that one of the topics is death. And boy, I said to George, I said, you know, I would love to get a copy of that. And it's a very, very old book, very, very hard to find. And to my absolute joy and astonishment, about four and a half weeks after that time together on my desk showed up one of the original copies, 130 years old or so, written in 1879 by two guys. And the title was The Royal Path of Life. And I'm going to go right to the section on death. This lesson is not about getting excited about dying, but this lesson is about understanding the power of eventuality. And when we think about the power of eventuality, what impact can it have on us today? Let me, if I can, quote as I read from The Royal Path of Life. No sex is spared, no age exempt. The majestic and courtly roads which monarchs pass over, the way that the men of letters tread, the path of the warrior traverses, the short and simple annals of the poor, all lead to the same place, all terminate, however varied in their routes, in that one enormous house which is appointed for all living. One short sentence closes the biography of every man, as if in mockery of the unsubstantial pretensions of human pride. Quote, the days of the years of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. End quote. There is the end of it, and he died. Such is the frailty of this boasted man. It is appointed unto men, unto all men, once to die. No matter what station of honor we hold, we are all subject to death. As in chess play, so long as the game is plain, all the men stand in their order and are respected according to their places. First the king, and then the queen, and then the bishops, after them the knights, and last of all the common soldiers. But when once the game is ended and the table taken away, then they are all confusedly tumbled into a bag, and happily the king is lowest and the pawn upmost. Even so it is with us in this life. 
The world is a huge theater or stage wherein some play the parts of kings, others of bishops, some lords, many knights, and others yeomen. But death sends all alike to the grave and to the judgment. Death comes equally to all and makes us all equal when it comes. The ashes of an oak in a chimney are no epitaph of that to tell me how high or large that it actually was. It tells me not what flocks it sheltered when it stood, nor what men it hurt when it fell. The dust of great men's graves is speechless too. It says nothing, it distinguishes nothing. As soon as the dust of a wretched whom thou wouldst not, as of a prince whom thou couldst not look upon, will trouble thine eyes if the wind blow it thither. And when a whirlwind hath blown the dust of a churchyard into a church, and the man sweeps out the dust of the church into the churchyard, who will undertake to sift those dusts again and to pronounce? This is the noble flower. This is the yeoman. This is the plebeian bran. Look at that hero as he stands on an eminence and covered with glory. He falls suddenly, forever falls. His intercourse with the living world is now ended, and those who would hereafter find him must seek him in the grave. There, cold and lifeless, is the heart which just now was the seat of friendship. There, dim and sightless, is the eye whose radiant and enlivening orb beamed with intelligence. And there, closed forever, are those lips on whose persuasive accents we have so often and so lately hung with transport. From the darkness which rests upon his tomb there proceeds, methinks, a light in which it is clearly seen that those gaudy objects which men pursue are only phantoms. In this light how dimly shines the splendor of victory, how humble appears the majesty of grandeur. The bubble which seemed to have so much solidity has burst, and we again see that all below the sun is vanity. True, the funeral eulogy has been pronounced, the sad and solemn procession has moved, the badge of mourning has already been decreed, and presently the sculptured marble will lift up its front, proud to perpetuate the name of the hero, and rehearse to the passing traveler his virtues. Just tributes of respect, and to the living useful, but to him, moldering in his narrow and humble habitation, what are they? How vain, how unveiling! Approach and behold, while I lift up from the sepulcher its covering. Ye admirers of his greatness, ye emulous of his talents and his fame, approach and behold him now. How pale, how silent! No marital bands admire the adroitness of his movements, no fascinating throng weep and melt and tremble at his eloquence. Amazing change! A shroud, a coffin, a narrow, subterraneous cabin. This is all that now remains of the hero. And is this all that remains of him? During a life so transitory, what lasting monument then can our fondest hopes erect? My brethren, we stand on the borders of an awful gulf, which is swallowing up all things human, and is there amidst this universal wreck, nothing stable, nothing abiding, nothing immortal on which poor, frail, dying man can fasten. Ask the hero, ask the statesman, whose wisdom you have been accustomed to revere, and he will tell you. He will tell you, did I say? He has already told you from his deathbed, and his illumined spirit still whispers from the heavens with well-known eloquence the solemn admonition, quote, Mortals hastening to the tomb, and once the companions of my pilgrimage, take warning and avoid my heirs. Cultivate the virtues I have recommended. Choose the Savior I have chosen. Live disinterestedly. Live for immortality. And would you rescue anything from final dissolution? Lay it up in God, end quote. Boy, I could go on. There's about another six pages on death, but can you just feel the sincerity, the richness, the truth, the unbelievable power in words that are decades, if not centuries old? What I was most impressed by at the start of this book, The Royal Path of Life, was that the author said that there is nothing new to be presented. And this idea of death is nothing new to be presented. This idea that we're not going to make it out of here alive is really nothing new to be presented. But in the absolute fast-paced, workaholic, overscheduled days and weeks and months that we call life, the question is, are you preparing for this eventuality? See, one of the things that I think is critical to understand is this idea that this is obvious. Four questions in your notes that I think are worth considering as we begin this, what I hope will be a life-transforming lesson for you, is question one. 
what will we do with our lives to make them the best lives ever? You know, you could park right now on that simple question and you could begin to develop a list of things that you're not doing in your life right now that you know if you did do that it would make your life a better life. And this is the only life that you have, and it's the only life that I have, and it would be my hope, my earnest and deepest wish that this lesson changes your life forever, that you would find that you could mount up on the words that come out of my mouth and that perhaps swirl in your mind like on wings that take you to a level that you have never, ever been to. And it would also be my hope that this lesson inspires you and compels you to go and do the things that are hard, to make the tough decisions, to prioritize in ways that you've never prioritized. Because the question will never change. What will we do with our lives to make them the best lives ever? Question number two is a powerful question. Have you planned for the most obvious event of your life, your death? And what I need to say to you is this is not about your plot this is not about where you'll be buried. This is not about your headstone. It's not about your epitaph necessarily, unless it's so motivating to think what you'd like to have said then that you live it now. This is not about making sure that your wills and trusts are taken care of and that you have the right insurance in place so that your estate isn't hammered when you die. This is about have you planned for your death so that if it happened an hour after listening to this CD a difference would have been made, that you would die proud, that you would die strong, that you would die well. And I sit here and I think about that applied to my own life. And what are some of the things that maybe even in the next 24 hours I could do so that in the event, for some reason or another, that last breath comes sooner than later, that my life would have been in its last moments a life worth living. And yet how accumulative would the synergy be from the discipline of living a life that way every single day? And that's really where I hope something like this takes you. And certainly as I write these types of lessons, I'm reminded of the simple truths of how important it is to go forward and not go backwards. And yet this life that we have does not have any warning sign whatsoever as to when it will be the last moment. Recently, we were conducting our mastery event, and we had 2,400 people in the room. And amidst discussion with several pros on the stage, I heard three or four people from the audience yell, we've got an emergency, we've got an emergency, somebody's down. And 2,400 people are looking at the one area in which, obviously, we have a problem. And as this gentleman fell over and as this gentleman laid on the ground, you could just feel, at least I could, and I'm sure the thousands of people in the room could just feel that this could be bad. And yet it could be okay, and it could be bad, and yet it could be okay. And so I jumped off the stage, and with the help of several participants and with a trained EMT that happened to be one of our participants as well, we assessed Tom very, very quickly, and we learned a couple things, that he did have a pulse. We learned that it was stable. We learned that he was breathing. We learned that his brain was working because we asked him where he was, and he was able to answer, and we asked him what day it was, and he was able to answer. And at the end of this particular story, all that really happened was that Tom fainted. He had a blood sugar imbalance, and there's some problems with that in his particular body, and he fainted. But who could have told that it may have been his last breath? Who could have told in advance that it may be that last heart attack or the first heart attack that is the only heart attack an individual ever has? Nobody knows when the light will be snuffed out. And so we've got to pursue life with this sense of eventuality. Question number three is, what will be said about you when you're dead? I know that doesn't feel like a really good question to talk about, but I have to tell you something. If you don't answer that question now and death for you comes prematurely before you had actually planned on it, which again is impossible anyway because you can't plan on it, okay, what will be said about you? And here's the drill. To live that way now ensures that it will be said about you long after you're gone. Question number four, what legacy are you creating right now? The study was conducted by sociologist Tony Campolo, and one of the questions that was asked to 50 people over the age of 95, what one thing would you do differently if you had your life to live over? And the top three answers in this order were as follows. I would reflect more, I would risk more, and I would do more that would last after I'm dead. 
Well, that last question has to do with legacy. But what creates legacy is risk. And what creates risk is reflection because it's impossible to know where the risks are unless you slow down long enough to reflect. I was reminded about the power of all four of these questions recently when I got a disturbing call from my father. And my mom and dad were at their home in Orange County, California, rather than their home up in Idaho. And it's about an hour north of me. And I could just tell the moment I picked up the phone that something was wrong. And we learned that just moments earlier that evening, one of my dad's very, very best friends of over 40 years had suffered a massive heart attack during dinner and was on life support. And it was amazing to see how my dad worked through that in the hours that were occurring shortly after Lee had gone down. And it was amazing to see the decisions that had to get made, you know, while he was on life support. But I'll tell you something that was really, really impactful for me was the fact that just that afternoon, Lee and my dad spent hours together, as they oftentimes did on a regular and consistent basis, pouring into each other. And my dad will be so forever grateful that he had some of Lee's last hours. And yet a week later, I decided to make the journey up from San Diego, where I lived, to Orange County, where the service was for Lee Harris. And I'll tell you, I was ministered to in really impactful ways, because as I watched his son, Jeff, who's 52 and six or seven years older than me, a childhood buddy of mine, as I saw his daughter, Marcy, talk, as I saw their grandchildren talk about Lee and the man that he was and the heart that he had and the unselfishness that he lived his life with, it inspired me to even more consider taking this lesson to completion because I want people, I'm sure you do too, to say the kinds of things that are true, noble, and pure about me after I'm gone. Not forced, not manipulated, not because you got 200 friends gathered together and you certainly don't want to say anything bad about somebody. But I do want you to know that the message is people will talk about you after you're gone. And what you do now determines what they'll say later. One of the quotes that I really have fallen in love with because I think it is so appropriate in your notes is life is not a moment in time, but it's a time of moments. And you may have heard me talk before that I really do feel that there's two great illusions of living. I think two great illusions that all of us have to deal with every single day are, number one, someday life will settle down. And the reason why that's an illusion is because life never really does settle down. In fact, you and I could agree without even you know, being in the same room with one another that the only time that life really settles down is when a human being makes the decision to settle it down. The only other, I guess, time it would settle down is when, when you do die and then life really settles down. It's like immediately no stress. Here's what I found in studying human performance. And as I look at the 22-year run that I've had, not only being a top producer, but more importantly, studying top producers, I will tell you this, that the most successful people in my mind, those who have it all, made a decision to settle life down intentionally. Let me tell you a quick story that I like. Dr. Luke, an ancient doctor from the uh, biblical context of the four Gospels, tells a story, if you want to read it for any impact at all biblically, it's Luke chapter 12. But here's kind of a modern-day version of what is said in that particular parable in the Bible. Once upon a time, there was a really bright guy. He worked 12 to 14 hours a day. There was no question he was on the fast track. His business was growing. He worked every weekend. He joined every professional organization possible so he could network and expand his business development opportunities. When he was not working, he found his thoughts always drifting towards his work. Work was not only his occupation, it was also his preoccupation. His wife tried to slow him down. She reminded him that he had a family and a home. He was vaguely aware that his kids were growing up and that he was missing out. From time to time, they complained, wanting to be together, wanting to play, wanting to have him read them a book, wanting to spend family time together. After a while of not having enough time together, no playing, no books read, they stopped complaining because they stopped expecting. Finally, this man said to himself, okay, I'll be more available to my spouse. I'll be more available to my kids. I'll come home regularly as soon as things settle down. While he was a very bright man, he never seemed to notice that things were not settling down. One morning, he felt a twinge in his chest. He told his wife, and they scheduled an appointment with the doctor. The doctor ran the test, which indicated that the man had heart problems. They told him he had all the symptoms, high cholesterol and elevated blood pressure, and if he did not make some changes fast, he was headed for trouble. So the man began an exercise program. He cut back on fatty foods. He reduced his drinking, and for a while, he made some progress. Yet as soon as his symptoms disappeared, his motivation also disappeared, and he rationalized he did not have the time for this regimen. There would be time for this later when things settled down. 
He recognized that his life was out of balance. His wife tried to get him to go to church. There were so many good churches within a few miles of their home. The man intended to go, but when Sunday arrived, he started making excuses. Parking was a hassle, and the sermon was always too long. Besides, Sundays were the only time he had to recharge his batteries. Nevertheless, he promised, I'll start going to church when things settle down. One day, his chief financial officer came in with some startling news. He said that the company was on the brink of a major breakthrough. If it all went right, none of them would ever need to work again. They were inches away from the mother load. To ensure that they caught this wave, he urged that they upgrade all their systems, their software, their computers, and implement better inventory control, full email accessibility, and total mobile capacity. So the man became even more consumed. Every waking moment was spent on the opportunity at hand. He said to his wife one night, Do you know what this means? We're going to be set for life. Our future is assured. Financial security, a vacation, everything we've ever wanted. We're finally going to be able to relax. Finally, things will settle down. She had heard that before, so she didn't get her hopes up. By 11 that night, she was exhausted and asked her husband if he was coming to bed. He said to go ahead because he had just a few more things to do on the computer. He would be up in just a few minutes. At 3 a.m., the husband had not come to bed, so the wife went downstairs to get him. She went into the library and saw him asleep at his keyboard. She went over and tried to wake him up, but he did not move. She shook him harder, still no movement. When she felt his hand, it was cold. She called the paramedics, but by the time they arrived, it was confirmed that he had been dead for hours. His death was a major story in the financial markets. It was covered by Time, Newsweek, Forbes, and Inc. But it was too bad he was dead because he would have loved all the things they said about him. Because of his prominence, the entire financial community attended his memorial service. They filed past his casket and made the same inane comment people always make at funerals. He looks so peaceful. You know, death has a way of doing that to you. People eulogized him. He was one of the leading entrepreneurs of this time, and another reflected he was an innovator in technology and systems. Another said he accomplished so much. Later, they built a memorial to this man and wrote these words on the headstone, pillar, entrepreneur, innovator, success. They came to visit his grave, said their goodbyes, and then they all went home. If we compare this story with the story in the Bible, Luke 12, it is the lifestyle of a fool. And the reason why it's the lifestyle of a fool is because only foolish people ignore the one thing, the one thing that is more predictable than any other thing in life, and that is death. We are not going to get out of here alive. And so the decisions have to be made now to settle life down now. The second great illusion of living is that having more will bring me happiness. Having more, write that in your notes, will bring me happiness. I think it's incredible to begin to understand the idea here that more doesn't ever, ever, ever bring you happiness. All more does is bring confusion unless more is purposeful. And yet we have so many stories about what it means to accumulate and what it means to go out and have more. And I have a wonderful story that's told by Leo Tulsai, and it's entitled Having Much Land. And this is a story about a man for much of his life lived a contented life, or so he thought. Suddenly it occurred to him that he would be so much happier if he owned a lot of land. He began his quest and discovered a series of opportunities to acquire land. First he bought a little and then a little more, and later he bought some land with richer soil and then some land with still better soil. And with each parcel of land he acquired, he removed himself farther and farther from his family. He was willing to pay the price because he knew he couldn't be content unless he had enough land. One day the man heard about a village far away where land was being given away. Although to go there and acquire any land would mean a long separation from his wife and children, the man went. He met with the mayor of the village and the town elders, and they said, You can have as much land as you want. Here's how it works. You start in the morning, and you give us 10,000 rubles. We put it in a hat, and at sunrise you begin to walk. The land you can walk around in a single day will all belong to you. The only rule is that you must make it back to the hat by nightfall, or else you lose the money. The man was excited, convinced that he could walk around a great deal of land. The following morning, he gave the mayor the money, and it was placed in the hat. The man was then instructed to go to the top of the hill, the place where he was to begin and end his day's journey. As he began to walk up the hill, a strange thing happened to him. He had the entire march mapped out in his mind, but at the summit of the hill, he glimpsed the whole countryside. It was all beautiful land with rich soil and lush green vegetation. He knew his time was limited, but his desire was great, so he walked around plot after plot, determined to own as much land as he could. While the man walked over the land he wanted, the day became warmer. Suddenly the man noticed that it was almost noon and he had not yet begun to return to the hill. He walked around one last plot and then turned back. He had to move quickly to return to the top of the hill by sundown. It was getting hot, he was getting tired, and the sun was setting faster than he could walk. 
The man, however, could not stop or rest. He had to keep going, so he began to run. By then he was so fatigued he was out of breath. His feet hurt, and it slowly dawned on him that he was not going to make it. His greatest fear was that he was going to die, yet he could not stop. The man said to himself, if I were to stop now, everyone would think I'm a fool. So he kept going. He finally came into a clearing and saw the hill and the people on top. As he reached the bottom of the hill, the sun set. The man's heart sank, and then he realized that the people were on the hill, and for them the sun had not yet gone down. With one final burst of energy, he raced up the hill. At the very top, he reached out to touch the hat with the 10,000 rubles, but as he did, he stumbled, reaching as far as he could. He just barely touched the hat. He had made it. His servant rushed over to help him up, but as he reached out to the man, he noticed that blood was coming out of his mouth and that he wasn't breathing. The man was dead. The mayor laughed, and the people returned to their village. They threw a shovel to the servant who dug a hole in the hill. Yes, the man got his land, but it was less than he had hoped for. Instead of hundreds of acres, he ended up with only six feet of soil. It was his reward for losing perspective. In the end, he did not get much land. At the end of our day, too, six feet is all we get, just enough to bury us. So the question is, how much is enough? And, you know, when you begin to deal with that question, you begin to recognize that contentment in your life is a learned behavior. And one of the things I want to give to you as a gift, and it's in your notes, is what we call the Life by Design Checklist. Fifteen questions that I think are very important questions for you to ask and answer. And as you ask and answer these questions, I think some things will begin to happen to you. I'll breeze through them quickly. Am I missing anything in my life right now that's important to me? What am I passionate about? What gives meaning to my life? Who am I and why am I here? Where am I going? How will I get there? Number four, what do I value that gives me true happiness? Number five, what do I want to be doing in the next five to 25 years? Number six, what gifts has God given me that I'm now in the process of perfecting, and which ones am I not using as effectively as I could? Number seven, what am I willing to die for? Question eight, what is it, if anything, about my job that makes me feel trapped or stressed? Number nine, what changes can I make professionally to give me more freedom and peace of mind? Number 10, with regard to money, how much is enough? What does the excess serve? Number 11, am I living a balanced life? What areas are in need of focus? Number 12, who am I modeling and who are my mentors? Number 13, how do I want to be remembered? Number 14, what legacy do I want to leave my children? Number 15, is my eternal future secure? You know, after pondering these questions, I'd love for you to maybe even right now turn off the CD and and answer, what discoveries are you making? Maybe to park for two or three hours on the 15 questions that I've just given to you and begin to take a look at discoveries that you would make. And after particularly thinking about the most powerful ones, maybe there's four or five that you could write down that you really want to begin to work on so that you will make this life a life worth living. From these discoveries, maybe there's some minimums you want to start to commit to. Maybe there's some minimums with regard to your time with God or some minimums with regard to your time with health or family or children or gaining knowledge. Maybe there's some minimums in terms of who you're going to be professionally and what time you'll work till and what time you'll start. Maybe there's some minimums that all of a sudden drive the decision that, you know what, I'm settling life down. I'm not going to wait for life to settle me down. I'm going to settle it down. Otherwise, it will settle me down. See, from these discoveries, as you begin to develop the minimums, you'll begin to live life at a higher level. And there's three things I want to talk to you about before we end this lesson that have everything to do with how you finish this race called life. The first thought is this, change your choices and you'll change your life. My good friend John Maxwell said something very important recently at a conference that we were at together. He said, successful people make important decisions early in life and then manage those decisions during their life. And obviously, the opposite is true. From that, two very important thoughts I think are worth considering. Number one, you or I cannot manage a choice that we have not made. Those are three very important words. You can't manage a choice you have not made. As soon as you make a choice, it's a decision. And you can begin to manage that decision during your life. See, I'm a firm believer that all life ends up being is a collective video of choices. Some good, some not so good, some flat out bad. But the balancing act is to, because of the checklist, because of minimums, because of models and mentors and some accountability, is to make more of the absolute right choices. 
And a choice is a thought that's not yet a decision. It's something that's occurring in your mind, your heart. You know you're going to make it. And the moment that you make it and decide and commit, then it becomes a decision. We'll talk about decisions in just a moment. But this is important. You can't manage a choice that you have not made. Recently, I had a friend of mine that absolutely made a choice that he was going to stop drinking. Now he can manage that choice. He can manage that decision. And I get reports from him at least every third day. And it's so exciting to see how he's managing one incredible choice that's become a decision. Now, here's what's interesting about choices in life and making them sooner rather than later. Number two in your notes under two very important thoughts says the longer you wait to make smart choices, the harder they are to make. So the longer we go in life not making the choices we know we should make, the absolute harder they will ever be to make. And the reason for that is obvious, perhaps maybe not, but to me it is, and that is because the longer you wait, the more ingrained the habit. The deeper the habit, the harder it is to undo it. So what we have as a precursor to, I believe, making sound choices is the idea that we must first have the right attitude. And this is a simple thought process, but as I am contemplating right now my next book, which will be out in 2005 that I need to write, we have another one coming out in 2004 that's already written, but I'm already working on the January 2005 book, and and I'm going to write a book on attitude. I don't have the solid title yet. I don't know if it's going to be survival. I don't know if it's going to be transformation. I don't know if it's going to be the secret is, there is no secret. I don't know if it's not just going to be called attitude, but it's going to be nine decisions to give you happiness and success. And attitude is the governing thought of that book. And in your notes, it says, when your attitude is positive, your choices are positive. When your attitude is strong, your choices get stronger. When your attitude is weak, your choices become weak. When your attitude is negative, your choices end up being negative. So the question is, you know, what's your attitude towards life? What's your attitude towards opportunity? What's your attitude towards adversity? What's your attitude towards the barriers and the obstacles and the hurdles and the difficult times? See, I am absolutely convinced that that person who is able to manage attitude is that person who can manage choices. And so I want you to take a look at how you can begin to make good choices based on this positive attitude. And I'll give you just some simple, straightforward thoughts. Number one, you make good choices when your choices are purpose and values-based. Let me see if I can put a, a, a little meat to that, okay? Long, long ago, I decided that I needed to teach people the importance of discovering their purpose. I didn't always have mine, and as I didn't have mine, I made a lot of poor choices. I made a lot of choices that yielded very, very poor results. I made bad food choices. I made bad drug choices for a couple of years. I made bad choices, and I still make some bad choices, and I continue to wrestle, as you do, with the value of purpose and the value of aligning a choice to purpose. But I do remember one clear, clear moment in time where in the morning of a seminar, I had indicated to people that my governing purpose was that I wanted to make a difference in people's lives, and I began to share with them different areas that I placed value on, and I placed value on my relationship with my wife and with God and my health, and went on to get a little bit intimate with them, and I said, for example, there's decisions I make about food because I realize that all being in good shape is about is a series of really good decisions. It was funny, we got to lunch, and they had two options. They had chicken cordon bleu or fettuccine alfredo, both of which would not have been a smart food choice. Well, you could argue that I had nine people at the table, and I had some built-in accountability, but it was very easy for me to make the decision of not having either one of those and asking for a large salad because I realized that if I'd had either one of them, it would have violated one of my values and it probably would not have allowed me to make a difference that afternoon. Why? Because I probably would have been slowed down. I probably would have had more of my blood in my gut than in my brain. And if you're a teacher, you can't have that relationship going on, you know, in terms of the physicalities of how you manage your state and manage your energy. And so I just made the decision and it was an easy decision. And so there ought to be in your mind a very central purpose on which all of your choices are made. And you ought to recognize that this purpose 
actually becomes the filter through which every one of those decisions is run. And I'm not there yet. I mean, you would think that having a best-selling book called The Power to Be Your Best, you would think that having written a book called Life by Design, you would think that I would have it all together. I'm going to tell you, I don't. But I am consciously aware of where I have default behavior, and I'm consciously aware of how my purpose doesn't get lived out when I make wrong decisions. And so I'm working on this all the way to the end, just like you will work on it all the way to the end. You make good choices when your choices move you forward and not backward. Why? Because you know what happens when you make a good choice. You know what happens when you execute on that choice. If it's perhaps working out, you know how much better you feel working out than having rationalized or justified why you didn't work out, forward, backward. You know how much better you feel when you make a decision to abstain from too much alcohol, forward rather than what? Backward. Yeah, you know how good you feel if you have a strong faith in God and you're spending time, you know, in devotion and prayer with him on a regular basis. And you know that when you don't, it moves you backward. And so the choices that we need to make in our life are choices that in the moment they're made, take us one or two steps forward, not backward. One of my favorite quotes has to do with how you interpret those times when you do go backwards. And it's this quote, be more concerned with your direction and not your perfection. Think about a win-loss column. If your choices can be more in the win column than in the loss column, then you're going to move forward. But if you've got more choices that are in the loss column than in the win column, you're going to be moving backward. And I think the thing that is key to this, number three, you make good choices when your choices are your choices. See, too often we have choices put upon us by others, Okay, and we go along with it. I'm not suggesting that you become selfish. I'm not suggesting that you become you know, centered on you only. But I am absolutely not even suggesting but telling you that life is about your choices. You have got to first be the person that makes smart choices. And they are then ownership-based. Your choices are your choices and they're ownership-based. I think one of the great, probably repetitive opportunities that you can always take a look at was most recently shared with me by my good friend Andy Andrews. He's got a powerful book out called The Traveler's Gift, and it's seven decisions that will help you be more successful in life. And the first decision is the buck stops here. And that decision is that you are responsible. You're responsible for every single choice that you make. You can make them, you can ignore them, or you cannot put as much attention on them as you should and make choices that are not as good. But in the end, everything is your decision. The law of responsibility, as I teach in The Power to Be Your Best, is about owning up and saying that if things aren't happening the way I want them to happen, then it's my fault. I need to change that. I need to take more responsibility. I need to take more ownership. These three marry themselves together very nicely when you understand that purpose and values will more often, if lived out in your choices, move you forward. And it's much easier to make your own choices and own those choices when you know that they're purpose and values based. So that's a thought that you might want to consider and a good resource for you, not in your notes, but if you'd like to maybe continue down this path of understanding the power of choices, there's a great book out by that same title, Choices by Shad Helmstetter, and it's a powerful, powerful book that I think you would find incredibly helpful if you struggle in the area of making smart choices. The second major thought process to this idea of ahead to dead and living life well while you can still decide how you want to live it, it has to do with problems. And the context of this is if you manage your problems, you manage your life. Change your choices, change your life. Manage your problems, manage your life. In your notes, quote, problems are a matter of interpretation. I really want you to see this. I've had a lot of problems in my life. You, no doubt, have probably had a lot of problems in your life. But I want to give you two real simple thoughts here that I think will help you with this in a really pretty major way. The first bullet in your notes says that what's happening in your life is not anywhere near as important as how you interpret what's happening in your life. So we got the what and the how issue going on here. What is happening in your life is real. You're not going to get any argument from me that what's happening in your life is not real. What's happening in my life is very, very real. But what derives new decision, direction, and choice 
is how I respond to those, how I interpret what's happening. I can have major, major issues that are problems in my life. And if I see them as problems, they will continue to be a problem. I'm not talking about some, you know, manipulation of truth, but I'm talking about silver lining thinking. I'm talking about seeing into the problem, about what maybe the positive aspects are. In your notes, the second bullet says that when we harness the power of our problems with an equally powerful strategy to deal with them, we will neutralize their effect and minimize the consequences they might have. So what I'm suggesting is that problems are never going to go away, but how about putting that harness, that bit in the mouth of the problem and get the power from the problem like you would the power from a horse after it's bridled and saddled up and then come up with a strategy to deal with the problems. If you do that, you'll neutralize their effect. In fact, problems will not affect you at all if you come up with a strategy to deal with them. And so therefore then the outcome would be minimized consequences, if any, that they might have on you. I typically use the four-question strategy for problem management, and I have it in your notes for you. And anytime a problem occurs, I simply ask this question or make this distinction and then ask a question. If this is the first time I've encountered this problem, what can I do now so I don't encounter it again? If I've faced this problem more than once, why does it continue? And what must happen now to avoid its recurrence? I'll give you a great example here. The first time I was ever embezzled from I want to think is the last time I will ever be embezzled from. But it was the first time I encountered the problem when I learned that hundreds of thousands of dollars have been stolen from our company. I hadn't faced this problem more than once, so it didn't continue, but I still had to make decision on what I needed to do so it would never happen again. And as a result of that, I put in six fiscal disciplines into my company, and I'm relatively convinced that it would be pretty hard for anybody ever to steal money from the company again. But let's say this was the second or third time I had been embezzled from. Obviously, why does it continue? And what has to happen to avoid its recurrence? It doesn't have to be just a business issue if you have a marriage that's in trouble. I mean, how long has it been in trouble? Is this the first time you've encountered its trouble? Or have you faced this problem before. Whatever, what do you have to do to avoid its recurrence? And that's obviously hoping and supposing that it would be important to you. Question number two is, what good is there in this problem that will create growth and advancement for me as I deal with it? I remember in 1995, we were in serious financial trouble as a company. We had way too much expense. We had way too many people. We didn't have enough revenues. We had gotten way too diversified. We were into businesses we shouldn't be in. And I remember the minute that it all hit me, that all of a sudden it was really good to make a decision to not be in the software business. And all of a sudden, it was really good to make a decision to not be in the marketing business. And all of a sudden, it was really good to make a decision not to be in the telemarketing business. Those are three different businesses that were really built on sand and not rock. We didn't have strong ideas about what we were doing. We were simply trying to ride the wave of the company's growth. And it hurt initially when I realized that maybe I had to shut down divisions or sell off divisions. But when I finally got clear that, you know what? This is great. This is actually great. It's actually great to be failing in three of the five areas in the company because the three of the five areas that we're failing in, if we got rid of those areas, imagine what we could do if we refocused our energies and did what we did best. And that's exactly what we did. But in the midst of all of this, we still were left holding the bag of almost $600,000 that we owed people. And so, you know, I'm sitting here trying to balance, you know, if I shut down the companies, I don't have the revenue. I need to pay off the people. Uh, um, what am I going to do? And I made the decision, the hard decision, that I would shut down the companies because I figured that if I could spend more time doing what I do best and well, and the company could also do that, we would actually make more money more quickly than we would by keeping divisions open and businesses open that we shouldn't be in. And so I had to build resilience. Resistance number three, how can I build resistance during the time it takes to fix the problem? Well, the way I built resistance is I got excited about paying vendors off, and I had all vendors that we owed money to agree to a plan of action, and I built my resistance by looking at the retiring debt, and within about two years, that debt was gone, and it was very, very exciting. How can you build your resistance? Maybe it's continuing to spend more time in devotion and relying on faith and God's arms to carry you through. Maybe you can build resistance in the six months it takes to maybe rebuild your marriage because you've been 
ignoring it for a year or two. And the way you would build resistance is by maybe plugging in some tapes on marriage or plugging in some tapes on being a better parent or reading some books to both of those issues. If you've got a problem and it's health-related, I mean, how can you build resistance during the time it takes to fix the problem? Cheryl and I are going through this right now in her battle with cancer. I mean, how are we building resistance? We're trying to make really smart choices about staying plugged in to people and to places and to programs and to processes that give us strength as we go through this. Number four, how can I change my perspective so my problem impacts me more positively? What's good about getting ripped off, embezzled from? Well, you know what? It reminds you that money is temporary too. You know, what's good about having, you know, 20 people out of 27 having to get laid off? It reminds you that those are human beings and you better do it right next time so that you don't hurt people again like that if it's at all avoidable. What's good about, you know, being told that you got to lose 40 pounds, otherwise you might be in serious danger of having a major heart attack? Well, what's good about that? Well, what's good about it is that if I can continue to make smart choices through this problem called being overweight and being obese, then, you know, obviously I'm going to be in the best shape of my life. And I've seen that happen to people and so have you. So what do you do with the problems in life and how do you let them just kind of come to a place where they propel you rather than paralyze you? I want you to know that problems are good. Problems that repeat themselves are not good. But all growth generally comes out of a problem that's solved. And then finally, the third element is change your choices, change your life, manage your problems, manage your life, manage your decisions, master your destiny. Here's a couple thoughts. Every decision will take you somewhere. Every decision will take you somewhere. What would the person you see yourself in the future becoming do with the decision you have to make today? What would that person that you see yourself in the future being, how would they be handling the decisions that you have to make today? So as some thoughts here as we begin to wrap this lesson up, five keys for effective decision making. Again, here comes purpose. Let your purpose guide every decision. Let your purpose guide every decision. I'd like you to get in the habit of making sure every major decision that you make is first asked, will this allow my purpose to flourish? Okay, if you can do that as you do this, you're going to live a life of greater abundance. Number two, make every decision subject to your most cherished values. Ask yourself, if I do this, will it help me make positive strides towards the things in which I believe the most? One of the things I want to share with you and maybe even remind you of if you've been to one of our seminars where I demonstrate this is one week after 9-1-1, the cover story in USA Today said American workers rethink their priorities. And apparently for years, actually, this group has been surveyed by the Gallup Institution and on a regular basis are asked eight governing values. Where do they rate in terms of priority? Coming into 2001, coming out of the roaring 2000s, you can probably understand that the before 911 picture was a very different picture than the post 911 picture. Prior to 911, one week prior to 911, career was number one, heart was number two, wealth was number three, health was number four, family was number five, home was number six, God was number seven, and country was number eight. One week after 911, family was number one. Heart was number two, God was number three, health was number four, country was number five, home was number six, career was number seven, and wealth was number eight. See, one of the things that I think these moments of truth do to us is they cause a reordering of priorities. So if that is true, and the certainty is we're not going to make it out of here alive, wouldn't it be great to go ahead to dead and decide what are the eight values and in what order are you going to live them for the rest of your life? That's a very powerful decision that you can make right now. Number three, make every decision without wavering. A big problem with decision-making is one foot in, one foot out, one hand in, one hand out, you know, kind of committed, not kind of committed. See, you've got to be committed to your decisions, and it's easier to stay committed to decisions when the decisions are based on your cherished values and let your purpose be fulfilled. Studies indicate, and this is important for you to see in your notes, that the most successful people are clear on their purpose and their values. The most successful people make decisions quickly and change their minds slowly. The most unsuccessful people make their decisions slowly and change their mind quickly. We have got to become unwavering decision makers to live life well. Number four, journal every poor decision. Two important words, journal every poor decision. And this thought is worth underlining or highlighting or committing to memory as you fill it in in number four. Lessons of the past are great 
teachers for the future. And you and I should live our life in such a way that we don't continue to make the same bad decisions. And then finally, number five, pray, meditate, and think before every major decision. On the really big ones, it would be important to seek the counsel of the wise. That's why I asked you earlier, who are your models, who are your mentors? With this in place, you'll have no need to worry. And that's an important word. I don't know where you're at in your life in terms of what you place value on and what you don't. But I do know this, that everybody would like a little bit more inner peace. And, you know, inner peace comes from a lot of different things. I found this recently. Actually, my next door neighbor sent it to me, and it's entitled Inner Peace. The way to achieve inner peace is to finish all the things you've started. Now, I have a lot of people laugh when I share this with them because they realize that there's a lot of stress when you have a lot of untied things. But this quote, the way to achieve inner peace is to finish all the things you've started, is then followed by this comment. I looked around to see all the things I'd started and hadn't finished. So today, I finished one bottle of white wine, one bottle of red wine, a bottle of Bailey's, my Prozac, a large box of chocolates, and a quart of beer. You have no idea how good I feel. Now, that might be one of the ways in which you try and feel good by uh, finishing all those things. And obviously a little humor here on a very heavy, heavy topic. But I'd like to propose a different thought here. The way to inner peace is to not worry and to have confidence. One of the scriptures that I rely on, and again, I'm not putting this on you. It's just something that I found very helpful in my life. And it's this. It's in your notes. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. For me, as a guy that loves God and wants to finish life strong, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that the life that has been given to Todd Duncan has pretty much been kind of figured out and that I'm the one that kind of keeps messing it up. And I just need to let go and more often let what God's plan is for my life bear itself out. But you have to, regardless of whether you buy into you know, scriptural comfort like I tend to or want to, or whether you have some other kind of thought that helps you not worry, whether you have your kind of definition of confidence and faith in a way that allows you not to worry. I'm telling you right now, worry will sink every major life that there is. The more you worry, the further down you spiral. And so whatever you need to do, and part of not worrying is making smart decisions based on your purpose and based on your values and letting the decision work itself out and not changing it too quickly or too early, and then journaling so you don't make the same stupid mistakes over and over and over again. Well, as we wrap this up and we think about a head to dead, we think about being productive during the moments you have that are a gift, the idea that life is not a moment in time but a time of moments, here's some final thoughts on what I call life productive behavior. We'll get these quickly. I think you'll get a sense of them. Number one, spend time on what's truly important. You may not get a second chance. Number two, decide to prevent instead of react. Life would be measurably better if you could be a preventer instead of a reactor. Number three, clean up your messes. Messy lives, okay, are not enjoyable. Messy moments lead to messy lives. Messy relationships lead to a messy life. Messy habits lead to a messy life. Clean up your messes and you'll clean up your life. Number four, control more of what you can and worry less about what you can't. Number five, choose your associations carefully. I'm going to do a lesson on this on the Selling Edge in about six months, and I have some new studies that show how powerful this one is. Who you associate with will take you up or bring you down. Number six, don't settle for average. You know, be above average. Be a leader. You know, make the tough choices. Be on the narrow road, the road less traveled. Number seven, seek help where you're underperforming. Get rid of the ego. Don't think you're strong enough to get out of, you know, your own grave, if you will. If you have a problem right now, seek help. Number eight, smile more and complain less. That's a very, very strong prescription for productive behavior. Number nine, slow down. Slow down. Slow down. You're going too fast. And number 10, be grateful. 